Now, imagine the BBC with four employees operating out of one room. No, it's not a glimpse of the future under Nadine Dorry's plans for the licence fee settlement. It's how it all began. So forget 2022 as one woman attempts to dismantle today's British Broadcasting Corporation. Let's go back 99 years this month to when the first woman joined the British Broadcasting Company. Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Men blooming everywhere. Mr. Marconi discovered wireless. Men like Arthur Burroughs predicted and then practiced it. Army captains like Round and Eckersley and Horace Doddisthorpe in the Great War experimented with wireless, innovated, and, uh, well, Captain Doddisthorpe's wife Gertrude, she broadcast with him. In fact, she broadcast to him, technically making Gertrude Doddisthorpe Britain's first DJ. But chromosome-wise, it's all been two XY and not enough XX. And that includes Daventry 5XX, a radio station that wouldn't appear for some years yet. But now in our story, it's the first days of 1923. The BBC have set up in Magnet House with a staff of four or five men. But this time, 1923, after New Year's, Eve, as opposed to Adam. Yes, the BBC's first female employee, Isabel Shields. She ends the BBC's 100% male staff list, instantly making the BBC a 20% female organisation. I've only got five people there. It's never looked back since. But looking back with us will be author and academic Dr Kate Murphy. She knows more than anybody, literally, about the early women at the BBC. She wrote the book Behind the Wireless, a history of early women at the BBC. And her voice sounds like this. I was at Woman's Hour, but I went off for a few months to do this research project into this kind of secret history of women in the BBC. No one knew the history of women in the BBC. And I discovered all this amazing stuff. And what goes hand in hand with women at the BBC? John Reith. Well, not quite hand in hand, but we pretty much can't talk about the Beeb's first women without looking at some of Reith's unusual management quirks that were starting to come in. He's on a hiring spree and he's hiring women and plenty of them. Join us in January 1923 for the first female employee of the BBC here on a podcast that is nothing to do with the BBC. We are just talking about them, not with them, not under them, not through them. This is the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello, it's Paul here, it's you there, welcome. Lots to tell you about now, of course. We are picking up momentum in terms of the British broadcasting centenary. Delighted to see the launch of the BBC 100 season. Now, I've put this on Facebook and Twitter, if you follow us there at BBC Century. Uh, there's links on the website to the BBC 100 things to do with the BBC, the objects that help define the history of them, uh, the 100 voices, the 100 faces. I think we have to particularly doff our hats to David Hendy and his team, and Robert Seater, the head of history at the BBC. They've done marvellous work getting out more and more information about British broadcasting's past. Now, of course, these are always, like any list, intended to, I suppose, provoke a bit of debate. We argue about what they've missed out, maybe. So if you'd like to have a look at the objects, voices and faces of the BBC, look in the show notes and find the links to them. Let us know, dear listener, what you think they've messed out. I can spot one or two, but of course, it's always subjective. It's down to the individual. 
brief interruption to tell you about my new play, the first broadcast. Yes, it's a one-man play written and performed by me, Paul Carenza, in which I portray Arthur Burroughs and Peter Eckersley, two radio pioneers who you will well know from this podcast. The play is on tour from February the 2nd at the Corner House in Surbiton, then February 3rd at Leicester Comedy Festival, St Nicholas Church, and then we go to Banbury, Barnes, London, Bristol, Blandford Forum, Kettering and Guildford, and then concluding on November the 14th, the actual centenary of the BBC at the Museum of Comedy in London. For tickets and info, go to paulcarenza.com and click the gig guide. The link is in the show notes. The first broadcast on tour. Come and see it now, or if you have a venue, do get in touch to book the show. It travels light. Now, before we get to the first female employee of BBC HQ in 1923, one follow-up email from last time. We mentioned in the previous episode Morris Cole, first BBC pianist. Now, do you recognise that name, Morris Cole? Well, one listener got in touch. Al Crawford. Hi, Al. Al found us via the nice article in the Radio Times last month. So good to know that that has gained us at least one listener. Welcome, Al. And a helpful listener at that, because Al points out Morris Cole wasn't just the name of the first BBC pianist. An equally famous radio pioneer, many decades later, in the 1960s, was also called Morris Cole, except he chose to change his name to Kenny Everett. Maybe worth a mention in passing. It most certainly is worth mentioning. Thank you, Al. I can't believe I didn't spot that. Did you spot that? Morris Cole II later became Kenny Everett. On the very same day as that broadcast from Morris Cole I with his piano forte solo, that's January the 2nd, 1923, the first woman of the BBC was being interviewed for her role by Mr John Reith. So to introduce us to Miss Frances Isabel Shields, let's meet this week's guest. Back in 2002, I had the chance to do a kind of a little project at the BBC. Former producer of Women's Hour, author, academic and the go-to expert on early women at the BBC, it's Dr Kate Murphy. And the BBC do this wonderful thing called Attachments which they started quite early on, I think, at the BBC. So an attachment meant that I could go and work in another part of the BBC. And then uh, I had this crazy idea to do a, to do a PhD um, while I was working at Women's Hour, not with three kids, wouldn't advise it. <laughs> and um, ended up being an academic when I left the BBC 10 years ago. I, I suppose, mostly, I've always been very interested in pioneering, pioneers, mm. women who were pioneers. I was fascinated by Hilda Matheson was the first woman I really kind of heard about Mary Somerville, these two women really kind of just, I, I just wanted to know more about them. And starting to research them led me to this incredible history of women in the early BBC and just how, how present they were. Your book, Behind the Wireless, A History of Early Women at the BBC, it's a marvellous book and it's one of the books that got me into this whole area. And when you, if you read any of the big biographies, you know, if you read like Ace of Briggs has written this in, you know, these five huge volumes of, of the BBC, BBC history. There are a few women in the, in the, in the, the, the two volumes that look at pre-war, which is obviously the period that you're in. There's very, very little mention of women in those books. In fact, there's a, in volume two of his, uh, his great history of the BBC, there's a one paragraph, it's quite a big paragraph, but this paragraph says that there were a great many extraordinary women at the BBC. And then he puts a few names in and you just think, what? Is that, that it? <laughs> Come on. And so in a, in a way, I kind of started off by taking that list of names. None of, none of them, I hadn't heard of any of them. At least Brock, you know, became one of my great, my great favourites. And just trying to track them down, tracking down all this absolutely extraordinary history. And women were so present in the, in the early BBC because it was such a pioneering kind of new organisation. And it didn't have kind of built-in discriminatory practices. So women, you know, they just, they just, they just needed people to, kind of, to get on and make this amazing 
broadcasting this new thing that nobody knew what it was. What's it going to be? By January 1923, plenty of women had already been involved in pre-BBC broadcasting. Let's look at a few then before we meet Isabel Shields, the first female staff member who put the auntie into Auntie Beeb. Now, we've covered many of these fine pioneer women on the podcast already. In chronological order then, we've got Gertrude Donisthorpe, who in World War I was there with her husband Horace. Horace would be on one side of the field, Gertrude on the other, and she would play gramophone records and introduce them. So... Yes, Britain's first DJ to an audience of one. Then you got Winifred Sayer, 1920, the first professional artiste on British radio. They had asked for anybody who heard us to uh, let them know. And when I looked in this book, I saw there was a ship a thousand miles out to sea. Well, I couldn't believe that. Go back to the start of this podcast. You'll hear about Nellie Melba, of course, a couple of months later, selling broadcasting to Europe. Here's Marconi on Melba. Dame Nelly Melba gave her first broadcast in June 1920 from this station. Worldwide interest was aroused by these broadcast concerts, and good reception was supported from listeners as far away as Persia and Canada. You can hear their stories right at the start of this podcast. Then in 1922, pre-BBC entertainers like Helena Millay. Andy Thing's string bags ain't they? I lost two pounds of beans last week. Spin and drop through the hole. And Helen Marr. <laughs> they broadcast before the BBC and just after its launch. Just like Vivienne Chatterton, who became the first children's presenter on London 2.0 at 5pm on December the 23rd. Just her for half an hour, until the first BBC celebrity broadcast took over at 6pm with another woman, Miss Jose Collins. Now, I recently found an article from Popular Wireless magazine, December 23rd, 1922. Cherchez la femme, who was that lady that announced one item from Tuolo the other night? I think I could make a very good guess. With all respect to Mr Burroughs and his confrères, I must add that the reproduction was distinct and pleasant. Decidedly pleasant. So I think that lady announcer must have been Vivienne Chatterton, because the dates tally up, as she was just starting with the Children's Hour in London. At that point she was singing, reading stories, and, according to that popular wireless article, perhaps she was announcing too. Top of Marconi House in a very tiny room. I remember what looked to me like a telephone mouthpiece hanging from the ceiling. She, of course, married Stanton Jeffries, 2LO station manager and future musical director of the BBC. But none of those women were directly employed by the BBC or installed at the busy head office. Where? The phones never stopped ringing, the duplicating machines never stopped duplicating, the typewriters never stopped clattering. Dr Kate Murphy. Magnet House had this one big office and then the little, this little tiny room that Reith was in. So he's in this, he's this enormous man in this little tiny office. And then... And then the, the main office, full of everybody else doing everything. Um, absolutely open plan, you'd say. So there was dire need of secretarial assistance. For example, January 2nd, 1923, a day after the events from the previous podcast episode, Cecil Lewis wrote a letter to the Birmingham and Manchester Broadcasting Companies. The deputy programme director said, Magnet House had been approached by the London Daily Press asking for details of Birmingham and Manchester programmes. Lewis didn't have a clue, so he said, please, could you let us know your plans? What are your schedules? Ideally, let us know two days in advance. We can then let the press know to print it. So that's the deputy director of programmes and one of the main broadcasters as the go-between between the press and the provincial stations. So clearly, head office needed staff. 
They had four, maybe five people working there at this point, and that was your lot. So John Reith went on a hiring spree. We know that Major P.F. Anderson started as company secretary the week before, technically maybe the very first person hired for the BBC, but Anderson and Reith instantly got off on the wrong foot. Major Anderson wanted to be called Major. Some did post-war, though Reith took issue with it. Anderson was only a legal officer, nowhere near the front line, so Reith thought him a little grand. So Anderson was not the secretary Reith was looking for. He wanted and needed his own. So on January the 2nd, 23, Reith interviewed Isabel Shields. Is it maybe Isabel Shields as She's, being secretary she, is the first it, female employee? Isabel maybe? Shields, I think, is, it was the first because she was one of the very, very first appointments because, you know, he needed a secretary. And she was a secretary, which is quite significant because um, most women, you know, they, they, were, they were called short-time typists or... They did so much more than their jobs. You wouldn't imagine that a short-time type at the BBC would probably be producing programmes and stuff. But um, So she came in as secretary and just organised him. She was a graduate of Girton College in Cambridge. She wore a monocle, and she insisted was for medical reasons. And as a hobby, she'd go on to race a Bugatti at Brands Hatch. Reith noted she was an intelligent, horsey young woman, recommended to him by Lloyd George's secretary and mistress, and later wife, Frances Stevenson. So Reith had this job interview with Isabel Shields. He later noted that he had explained exactly what he wanted, had a good talk and fixed her up as his secretary. Isabel Shields later reported that she got in by her abnormal powers of misrepresenting the truth about myself, which the then general manager believed to the extent of a few shillings a week. I think that gives you an idea of her sense of humour. It was a pay cut for Miss Shields. She was on £3 a week at the old Kent Road Chemical Company. Mr Reith offered her weekly wages of £2.15 shillings. She begins then the following week, January the 8th, 1923. That's the same day as a legendary live opera broadcast, the first outside broadcast. We will get to that on a future episode. So was Miss Shields then the fifth BBC appointment? Or was it Rex Palmer as featured last episode? Who can say? The records can't because we don't quite know when Rex Palmer was hired. But Isabel Shields was fifth or sixth. So let's say fifth equal. So she starts in the January and then you get other other women trickling in because the, all these kind of grand chaps need women to do all the stuff, you know, so, so they will be answering the telephones. They'll be, you know, doing the typing. They'll be, they have this, I would think of it, it was a Ronio machine or some old machine that duplicated stuff because obviously if you've got scripts, you need many copies of things. Isabel Shields was so busy, she never got to see broadcasting in action at Marconi House. She said Tuolo closed down each night before she'd licked the last envelope over in Magnet House and levered Reith out of his cubbyhole. Oh yes, over time, John Reith came to rely on her. He would unburden to her. She was one of a line of secretaries who would advise, cosset mother and occasionally bully him, as Reith's biographer Ian McIntyre beautifully put it. It was an unusual working relationship then. Reith would boss her, she would boss him. Miss Shields was told off by Reith for going to the cinema on a Sunday afternoon rather than having a seventh day of biblically mandated rest. She reminded him that actually that was the only time in the week that she could go to the cinema, given that Reith had her working all hours of the day, six days a week. Yes, Saturday was a working day. Over the years, Reith would actually begin to take his secretaries to the cinema himself and to dinner. Maybe he was just a bit miffed then that Isabel Shields went without him. For example, January the 20th, only two weeks into her tenure, Reith reports in his diary that he took Miss Shields to the opera. Over the years, John Reith would rely on her for almost everything. She would help design his office, look after his mother when she visited London. Shields was more of a PA and life coach than anything. In return, John Reith dedicated his book Broadcast Over Britain to her. 
Miss Shields and Mr. Reith kept in touch after her departure. In fact, John Reith became godfather to her daughter. Well, what better godfather than one who thought he had been sent by God? So Shields has been called Reith's longest-suffering personal secretary. I think, actually, her replacement, Elizabeth Nash, who joined as second secretary in 1925, stayed longer. But maybe they mean that Miss Shields suffered more in her time there. She lasted five and a bit very strenuous years, as Reith referred to their time, in a tribute on her departure. In that time, Isabel Shields had seen the BBC go from company to corporation, from Magnet House to Savoy Hill. When the general strike came along in 1926, there was a bit of a news crisis, as we'll get to in about 80 episodes' time. So the BBC had to suddenly create a pop-up newsroom, and Isabel Shields, secretary, actually made that newsroom happen. When Shields left in 1928, it was to marry the son of the Bishop of Bradford, a chap called Francis Perrone. As the son of a bishop, surely that would meet Reith's approval, yet he felt somewhat jilted. We are delighted to announce the marriage of Francis Edward Perrone and Francis Isabel Shields. Yes, Francis and Francis. Lucky she went by Isabel, or to everybody at the BBC, simply Shields. Her replacement was Elizabeth Nash, who was promoted from second secretary. Nash stayed for another decade and left to see the world in 1936. And she was succeeded by Joe Stanley, who then stayed with Reith all the way to his new job at Imperial Airways. But all of that is a long way ahead yet. But each of these three were loyal to Reith. They were resilient to the core, a force to be reckoned with. Isabel Shields set the mould. And she set sail. When she left, she left not just the BBC. She took a boat to Singapore and Australia and ultimately to Paraguay, where her husband was working for the Bank of London in their South American branch. Now, I previously mentioned on a podcast that Miss Shields was possibly the one who picked up the phone to Reith on December the 30th when he first arrived in the office. But now I think that looks like it may have been Olive May. Now, Olive May worked at the General Electric Company, which was Magnet House, on reception there. So when Reith first arrived in the last days of 22, that's the voice he would have heard. Some history books do say, though, that Reith had hired that person. But it looks like that person, Olive May, only became a BBC employee when they moved to Savoy Hill. So for these first few months, yes, she was helping the BBC, but a general electric employee. So that's why I think Isabel Shields still qualifies as the first female BBC staff member. Olive May, though, very soon behind. Olive May, who was the first telephonist. So when they, when they moved to Savoy Hill, I think it's in March, March 1923. Mm. They need a switchboard operator. And Olive May, who, who's works, I think, for GEC. So she leaves a good job to go to work for the BBC. And people think she's completely crazy because you know, there's no job prospects. What's going to happen? Nobody knows what's going to happen. She's just taken this plunge in the dark. And so she has this little tiny cubicle, I imagine, where she does the, the telephone calls. But she's interviewed by John Reith and also... Uh, Caroline Banks, who's the first, she comes in. So Caroline Banks comes in and she kind of is, is the first women's staff supervisor. So they already have, you know, they already have a woman to kind of oversee the women's staff. And, and she is, you know, she's told that it's a, it's, it's a very important job because she is the voice of the BBC. So anybody who phones the BBC, the, the voice they're going to hear is, is Olive May. And Reese yeah. says it's a very important job. Mm. He becomes, they become very good friends. But this idea of, in, of, of you know the status of a, of the telephonist um and she was obviously excellent at, at her job they're just really interesting characters and taking that risk to go and work for something that nobody knows what's going to happen 
any new kind of enterprise that it just was very exciting. And you get this sense when you when you read any of the anything you can find, because obviously these women are very hidden, which makes it more much more exciting to find them, but also more difficult to find them. But you do just get this sense of feeling part of an, something amazing. Just feeling that we're all in it, in it together. That's what mm. they say all the time, don't they? Absolutely, indeed. Yeah, more and more nowadays, yeah. Reith wants to employ women not only as secretaries, but ultimately as department heads and on-air presenters. One had to find men and women not just good enough for the immediate responsibilities of this or that post, but for what it would be some years ahead. The requirement was for men and women who wanted to be in the BBC and nowhere else, who realised its potentialities and were moved and minded to share in their achievement, who realised also how exacting the labours would be. Reith seemed to say that he didn't really care whether someone was male or female, as long as they were completely loyal to the BBC. We'll see in time if that gender balance really carries through the organisation, that the BBC certainly employed more women than many industries at the time. Ralph Wade, who again is one of the early early employees, he's kind of written a memoir. In this, he talks about how they literally had who's who and would go through who's who to try and find out who to interview and phone people up. So this kind of crazy thing of phoning people up, what's broadcasting, come to, was it Marconi House where they actually went up to do the actual, those early broadcasts? Mm. This is where they were doing the kind of the, or the, the business side of stuff, organising. But uh, it's just, just extraordinary to, to imagine this kind of, concerted effort to try and get people to go onto the wireless so you could actually have a product mm. you had to have a schedule you had to kind of you had a schedule and you had to fill it with stuff um, that's always the producers you know as a producer that's what you do when I was a radio producer you produce stuff you know there's a uh, you have a big space and you fill it fill it up yeah. I think it's Ruth Cockerton again who writes when she's interviewed how everybody just helps out because when you're making programs you need people to broadcast Nobody knows what broadcasting is. Ah, yes. Ruth Cockerton arrives in 1924. She becomes one of Reith's assistants, the switchboard gatekeeper to his office. Now, one of Reith's pet hates was if his voice wasn't recognised on the phone. Here's Ruth Cockerton herself. If he telephoned your office, and if you didn't immediately recognise his voice, even if you'd never heard it before, you were almost liable to instant execution. So they had a ringing code for shorthand. One ring was an ordinary person. Two rings was the controller, Admiral right. Carpendale. Three rings was the director general. Once the telephone rang four times and somebody said, well, that must be God. (laughs) Speaking of Reith, this may be a good time for an email that we've had, which I think asks a fair question about not just Reith, but my dealing with Reith. Now, I have had a habit on this podcast of repeating some information to catch you up. If you've not heard every episode or need a brief reminder, I want you to get the whole story. So one listener has asked that whenever I mention Reith's possibly homosexual affair in his pre-BBC days with his best friend Charlie... Why have I mentioned the homosexual part once or twice? Does it matter? Does it make it more significant that it was a gay relationship? Well, perhaps not, but perhaps yes. The reason I've mentioned it is, well, let's have Dorothy Torrey explain. Now, Dorothy Torrey joins later, 1936, quickly moves from the general office to being one of Reith's secretaries. She adored him, but she noted this, which may help explain why I've mentioned that Reith's possible affair was with a man. Dorothy Torrey recalls one of her favourite BBC colleagues, an announcer. I was quite taken with him from afar, and I suddenly heard that he was going to be dismissed. And I asked one reason for this, and they were rather cagey about it, evasive. And so I, I asked Sir John. I said so I couldn't understand it because he was so good. So he said, well, I'm afraid he's a homosexual. 
So yes, apologies if I have over-egged the gay pudding. That's an expression and a half. But I felt it relevant, given that later, Reith saw homosexuality as a sackable offence. Interesting that that may well have been in his past. And what about divorce? Well, one day, when they're at Savoy Hill, Reith stormed into the office of Cecil Lewis, the deputy programme director. Reith threw a copy of the Times onto Lewis's desk and said, I see Daisy Kennedy's performing tonight. Well, Lewis had his mind on programming far ahead, didn't know about Daisy Kennedy, and said, Oh, is she? Anything wrong with that? Haven't you seen the papers? She was divorced yesterday. We can't have a divorced woman performing. And Reith stormed out. The state itself is not indifferent to divorce, or wasn't then, in its service, in the civil service and so forth. Look, I, I, I have said this often to many. I understand your position sufficiently that I believe if I were in your place, I would act as you're going to act. But I would resign first from the BBC. For much of this episode, I have to thank Dr Kate Murphy, who will return, and her marvellous book, Behind the Wireless, a history of early women at the BBC. Get your copy now. Thank you, too, to Mike Harris for some extra info on Francis Isabel Shields. Mike is a writer of note with countless radio plays under his belt, and he's been commissioned to write a new one to be on BBC Radio 3 later this centenary year. It's on the BBC's tricky relationship with the government during the general strike. Well, at least the BBC and the government are getting on fine today. Ahem. Mike Harris will join us as a future guest on the podcast to tell us more about his forthcoming play. And don't forget my new play, The First Broadcast. Not on your radios, but on stage. Head to paulcarenza.com slash tour for tour dates and details. And see you on the road. Another great resource that I was finally able to get to was the Written Archive Centre at Caversham. Yes, this is where the BBC store loads of their old marvellous things. And in fact, I was the very first person through their doors in this centenary year. It was just after New Year. I was uh, meant to be there with a couple of other researchers who cancelled for uh, for covid reasons, I believe. I wish them well. And what a marvellous team. What a brilliant place it is. It was just incredible to, to go along there and see and hold in my hands things like Reith's actual diaries, like the actual piece of paper that first named the BBC as the BBC, which, as we mentioned before, was also the first piece of paper to have the word pirates associated with illicit radio practices. So many marvellous things. Uh, I could talk to you about it for ages. So I will be, as ever, hoping to paraphrase much of these things as we drip-feed you the story of British broadcasting here. But thank you to the BBC Written Archive Centre at Caversham, the amazing team there who are doing brilliant things. I love them to bits. I was honestly like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory going in there and also seeing a wall of books, many of which I've been trying to chase down on eBay for the last couple of years. Many of them I've got, but at Caversham, oh, they've got the works. Now, I should say, as this is not a BBC podcast as such, I had to pay my way to go to the Written Archive Centre. So a huge thanks. If you support us on Patreon or you've bought us a coffee at coffee.com, links in the show notes if you would like to do so again. That helps fund my trip to the Written Archive Centre. So thank you for that. Um, this is a non-profit podcast. We're not into the realms of profit just yet on this one. Uh, we have some marvellous people, a dozen or more people supporting us on Patreon. In return, I upload video and audio and writings and things there, about half of which is to do with this British broadcasting story, half of which are other writings in my other areas as a comedian and a writer and all sorts of other things there. And in fact, in the latest Patreon video, I've been showing off my new toy. I thought it's about time I got myself a crystal radio set. Yes, the cat's whisker. I've got this beautiful wooden box. I got it to myself just after Christmas, been looking on eBay for a little while, found a little bargain, and oh, it's a marvel. It's It's got all the bits in there. I'd like to say it's working. It, it isn't. The DAB's a bit rusty. The FM's not great. 
great. The AM's not good either. Uh, but it's my own little crystal radio set. You can see pictures of it on Facebook and Twitter if you follow us there. And you can see my behind-the-scenes viewing of it with a little video on Patreon. Links to all these things in the show notes. But thank you. If you support us on Patreon, you have helped fund my trip to the Written Archive Centre. I go and find more things out. I deliver them back here to you in the form of me telling you the story. And welcome to our latest patron, Gene Baxter. Gene the Bean Baxter, yes, radio legend from the US. I will embarrass both him and myself by repeating his kind tweet. Uh, Gene said, I honestly think in 100 more years' time, people will consider this podcast the official history of the BBC. Well, generous words, though I repeat, not official, but maybe the unofficial, but uh, rather going on a bit too much history of the BBC. Very happy with that. And indeed, wider British broadcasting. But where we are currently in 1923, yes, it's all Beeb. Apart from that little voice in Rittle, Peter Reckersley, still every Tuesday broadcasting from his hut there in Essex. We will round off his story in a few episodes' time. For a novel approach to the story of early women at the BBC, there's the book Radio Girls by Sarah Jane Stratford. She'll be a guest on a future podcast, but here's a sneak preview. I've always been interested in the time period, uh, particularly for women, because, you know, it, it, it was a time when women were entering professions, becoming, you know, more active in the in the public, in public, in the public eye, etc. And uh, I was you know, just doing a bit of casual research, mostly on women in journalism, as you do. And I came across this name, Hilda Matheson, mm. uh, first director of Talks BBC. And I thought, I've read a fair bit about the time period. And I sort of thought I knew at least some of the main talking points about the history. And I've never heard of this woman. Mm. So I started reading up on her. And yeah, like my jaw just kept dropping and dropping. I mean, she, she was she was just so incredible. Uh, you know, everything about her. <laughs> Next time, we're still only on day two of January 1923, so we're going to race through the first week of January and lead us up to the first opera broadcasts. Now, this means changes in terms of microphones, call signs, and we'll be hearing from radio devotee Jim Salmon on what he's got planned to mark the centenary of not just the BBC, but British broadcasting in Rittle. Join us next time with Jim and find us on Twitter and Facebook. Check the show notes for links to this and many more things. But the last words from Isabel Shields herself on her departure in 1928, as quoted in the original BBC in-house newsletter, The Savaloy. I've always enormously enjoyed my work. I'm terribly sorry to leave. I don't think there is anything else, except that I hate leaving all my friends and many interests in London, although the future, as it becomes the present, will undoubtedly sweep away any lingering regrets. Ah, but did the future sweep away those regrets? Did they, Miss Shields? Or were you there in Paraguay, married, racing your Bugatti, wearing your monocle, wondering how the BBC was faring without you? And who Wreath was having a go at next? Well, Miss Shields, we thank you for your service. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain, as far as we know, due to age, although some rights may belong to other owners that we can't trace. If that's you, we humbly bow to your every whim. Clips are removable, do just say. BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. And a huge thanks to the BBC Britain Archive Centre, its staff of angels past and present, and God bless all who preserve, inform, educate and entertain about these marvellous old stories. Join us next time in this British broadcasting century.